Hey, welcome. Welcome to North Village Church. So glad you're here on this 4th of July weekend. Uh, it's really a blessing this morning that we get to welcome Kevin Jenkins back to uh, teach this morning. Uh, as you guys know, Kevin and Jessica and Anna Lynn and Evan, their two children, part of our church for a good while, and they, they were such awesome people to have in our church. They're just, you know, Jessica helping lead the women's ministry, and Kevin and Jessica helping lead their community group, and they just really just sank into our church community, and they helped teach our children, and uh, they moved up to Georgetown, where they're connected to a church now, and thank you for coming down to, to bless us with the yeah, word today. Absolutely. Give them a hand. My pleasure. Hey, guys. Really good to see y'all. Um, really good to be back. I certainly wasn't expecting the applause, but uh, thank you. That's humbling and embarrassing. I appreciate it. Um, so this morning, we are continuing in the message series, Heavenly Citizens. Uh, we're walking through Philippians. Uh, and, and the idea here is that when we follow Christ, uh, when we are in Christ, we are citizens of heaven. And, and that actually comes from Philippians. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. Uh, but we aren't just waiting to get to heaven. There's a, a present reality of knowing Christ and walking in faith with Christ right now here in Austin, Texas, 2022. And so we've been walking through Philippians, looking at some characteristics of heavenly citizens in this series, showing how heavenly citizens live. In, in, in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote about rejoicing in the Lord. And chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote about glorying in the Lord. The idea that, that we, we would revel in the Lord's glory as we know him. And last week, Pastor Michael talked about circumcision and how we don't have confidence in the flesh or in our own accomplishments, but rather in Christ. That's a message I'm glad I didn't have to preach. Um... But today's topic, uh, it, it could be a little heavy as well, uh, but there's also a lot of hope in it. So I hope and pray that you'll track with me as we go through this. We're going to see this morning that the work and the person of Jesus Christ is paramount in persevering and not quitting through life's most painful events. Say it again, just soak it in. The work and the person of Jesus Christ is paramount in persevering and not quitting through life's most painful events. Everything we do this morning is going to build off of that idea, um, but before we dive in, I want to pray, and then I want to give you a little background on the Apostle Paul, because I think that's going to be really, really important for what we do here this morning. So if you would, uh, let's just pray real quick. God, I... I pray for the men and women who are here this morning. I, I pray for those who will hear this message, whether it's live here, whether it's online, uh, whether it's on YouTube later on. I, I just pray that you would speak your word, that you would open up our eyes, our hearts, and our ears to what you have to say to us. Help us to see the hope that we have in Jesus. Help us to see... the value and the power we have for perseverance and not quitting. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so background information on the Apostle Paul. Pastor Michael may have walked you through some of this, but I just want to recap it in case you weren't here, in case you haven't heard this before. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison, and, uh, and I'm preaching, so we may end up having some really interesting audio issues. Uh, we'll just roll with it. But Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi from prison in Rome about 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And in those 30 years, the apostles have gone out and they've been preaching the gospel under heavier and heavier threat of persecution. In fact, Acts chapter 8 tells of a young, zealous man named Saul who was actively persecuting the church to the point of murdering people. And he led people in this act and he approved of it. Well, not long after that... Not long after that, Saul met Jesus on a road to Damascus, and he had his life changed by the encounter with Jesus Christ. He turned evangelist, and he started becoming an enemy, like Jesus, of the religious ruling classes. Eventually, he ended up stoned, beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, and then imprisoned again, where he was in Rome writing this book. This is back up. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'll let you know if I need to switch to this. We're going to keep going with this for now. So with, so with all of that as the backdrop to the Apostle Paul and his story, we'll dive in to Philippians 3. Now, usually when, when, when there's a message, we preach a few points and there's like one application at the end. I, I saw several things in this passage that really jumped out to me. So I'm going to break it down into three sections where there's going to be three points of reflection and then summary at the end. So you're going to see some response questions in the middle. That's going to be for you to take, go home, think about, think about here, think about it at home. How do you apply this? How does this affect your life? So jumping in, Philippians 3, starting in verses 4 through 7. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ." And, and what I saw in, in, in that is that our right standing with the God of Scripture does not come from our credentials. Now, last week Paul said not to have confidence in the flesh. He's continuing that thought here in verse 4. In fact, if you look at the very beginning of verse 4, he says, uh, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, it should be me um, because I have more reason than anybody else to have confidence in my flesh. It sounds like a brag, and, and it's not even a humble brag. He's, he's, he's really claiming that. Now, I have coming up at work one of my favorite and most nerve-wracking times of year. Those of you who work probably can guess annual performance reviews. Uh-huh, I hear someone saying, uh-huh. 
Yeah, so the thing is with this is I have to write my own evaluation and then give that to my boss, and then he writes an evaluation of me. And so it's this weird dance of, uh, I, I, I want to tell him all of the good things that I've done this year, which he already knows, but I, I want to put it down on paper. I want to I basically tell him everything that I've done well, but, but I don't want to seem like I'm bragging on myself. So if anything, I might actually downplay some of what I've done. And so it's this weird dance of, of do I brag or not? Well, Paul's not doing that here. Paul is going all in on all his accomplishments. And these, this list of credentials not, might not make sense to us today, but they were really, really significant in Paul's time and to those people. He's basically saying, I'm not just the cream of the crop. I am the creme de la creme. I am the top notch. I'm elite. And then he runs down this impressive list of accomplishments. Circumcision on the eighth day after birth, as specified in the Mosaic Law. Michael talked a little bit about that last week. Paul says, I have Israelite ancestry in my background. I am of Israel. Some of who he was writing at in Philippi, they came from a Gentile background. If you know anything about the Gentile-Jew divide in the church, um, there were a lot of people who, who, um, who made a lot of that. Paul, Paul is saying, I am Israelite. His tribal origin is the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, from the tribe of Benjamin came the first king of Israel, which was also named Saul. Saul was Paul's name before he met Jesus. All right, I'm done. Am I on? There we go. All right. I'm going hands-on now. Um, that's one hand I can't wave around now. So, um, Where was I? Tribal, tribal origin was Benjamin. Um, Paul also said, I have Hebrew practice and heritage rather than Hellenistic. And what that means is those who came from Gentile backgrounds, they were known as Hellenists because they, they were Greek, they were, um, you know, uh, some other form of, of Near East uh, ethnicity or descent, but they, uh, they kept their own customs. They, they became believers in Jesus, but they kept their own customs. Uh, they kept, uh, sorry, uh, just threw me off. They didn't keep their own customs. Um, the Hellenists adopted Greek language, dress, and customs. So they, they, they became believers in Jesus, but they really adopted the culture of the Greeks. The, the, the Hebrews actually did the opposite. They, they adopted Jesus. They, they, they came to faith in Jesus, but they retained their culture, their dress, their language, their customs. And they, they saw themselves as set apart a little extra step than the Hellenists. And so Paul is saying uh, in verse six, uh, verse 5, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's basically saying all of the Hebrews that you see that are keeping their own language, dress, and customs, I'm, I'm the top notch of them. I am a Hebrew of 
Hebrews. He also says, I, I, I was a Pharisee. I was one of the religious rulers. He said, as far as my enthusiasm, my zeal for my religion, I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. And that persecution included murdering or leading in the murders of Christians. And then lastly, I was so righteous. I was so focused on righteousness and the observance of the law that no one could find any point of fault with me. Now, Jesus scolded some of the Pharisees because he said, you tithe, but you, you even tithe of your dill and your cumin. And if, if you like to cook, you know that those are spices. And Jesus is saying, you Pharisees are so self-righteous that you even go home and you grab your spices and you tithe from that. Meanwhile, you're misleading the people of God. What Paul is saying, I'm one of those guys. And so he, he goes through this list of accomplishment uh, of saying, as his way of saying, I have more credentials than anybody else. But he's not actually doing this as an exercise in bragging. He's, he's not. He's actually saying, if fleshly credentials are all that matter in this life, I have them all. And I know that it's not enough. And notice this, verse 8, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And what Paul's saying there is that he lost all of those credentials. He lost all of those achievements. He said, whatever I had, past tense, I counted as loss. In the original language, that verb is perfect tense, which means it's a completed action with continuing results. It means it happened, and I still feel it today. I lost it. I suffered the loss. I counted it as loss, but I still feel it today. And so he's saying all of those accomplishments, everything that gave me community, identity, social standing, and significant, I lost it all. What he doesn't say there, but is likely true, is he didn't just lose all of those things. He likely lost all of his relationships, his rabbi, his friends, his disciples, his family. You wonder why in Scripture we never hear anything about Paul's family? I never thought about this until this week. We never hear anything about Paul's family, not that I can recall. Peter, one of Jesus' original disciples, Peter had a sick mother-in-law. Jesus healed her, so we know Peter was married. Simon and Andrew were brothers. James and John left their dad Zebedee to run the family business while they went away with Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, Matthew 13, 55 says that Jesus had four brothers named James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and sisters mentioned in the following verse, verse 56. But we never hear of Paul's family. Probably because that's one of the losses he suffered. So not only his accomplishments, not only everything that he did, everything that he accomplished, everything that he he, he found significant, and he, he, he likely also lost his family. But then he says, I lost it all for the sake of Christ. Now, when he says, I lost it for the sake of Christ, he doesn't mean that Christ benefited anything from that. G 
Jesus doesn't get anything from the loss that Paul encountered. But what Paul got in that loss and despite that loss was Jesus. Paul is saying here, and he will continue to say, that in and through this loss, he knows more of Jesus, he feels closer to Jesus, and he even shares in suffering with Jesus. But because he has right standing with God through Jesus, he's able to persevere the loss of everything his former life held precious. So I'm wondering, where do we go for our sense of righteousness? When we, when we don't go to Christ, where do we go? Is it, is it our list of accomplishments? Is it, is it your degree, your GPA, your annual salary, maybe your bonuses, the size of your retirement account, how much you serve at church, how much you give, your perfect attendance award if you were raised Baptist? I'm wondering, what are the things that we are holding on to too tightly that they hinder us from knowing more of Jesus? Paul had to let it all go. He lost it all. But in that, he found more of Jesus. Moving on, verse 8, Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There is a lot there, but really what I saw in that, uh, among a bunch of other things, is that right standing with the God of Scripture does not come from our own experience. So we don't get right standing with God from our credentials. We don't get right standing with God from our life experience. Paul is reiterating the idea again that he counts everything he had as loss. Now, in the Greek, he uses a really strong word here. It's a Greek word, skubala. It means trash, refuge, refuse, dung. He's basically saying everything I had is like dung. Now, this is one part that I often hear taught in a way that has never really made sense to me. And maybe you've heard it too, so I, I want to talk a little bit about that. And, and here's why it never made sense to me. You have the Apostle Paul. He's had his life transformed by Jesus. One chapter earlier in Philippians, in chapter 2, he has written about the humility of Jesus. In other letters, he refers to himself in ways like the least of the apostles, the least of all the saints, and the greatest of sinners. Even his list of credentials and accomplishments here aren't bragging. I mean, who in Christ would brag that they were formerly persecuting the church? But yet, I hear some guys take this passage and teach it like this. I count all things as rubbish compared to Christ. 
So you want to take my wife? Take my wife. You want to take my kids? Take my kids. I want Jesus. But that's not what's happening in this text. And I don't think that's faithful to what Paul is saying in this text. First, in the context of what is going on here, Paul is talking about anything that would give him confidence in the flesh. Those are the things that are dung. He's not saying my family's dung. He's not saying my relationships are dung. He's not saying the other things in life are dung. He says anything that would give me confidence in the flesh compared to Jesus, I consider that dung. And secondly, I think that most of the people that treat the text that way haven't experienced the type of loss that Paul has experienced here. If anything, it seems like they're looking forward to some imagined event where they say, I hope my faith will be of the, the type of faith where I can say, no matter what I lose, Jesus is most important. And yeah, yeah, I, I hope so too. But that's not what Paul is saying here because Paul isn't looking forward. Paul is looking back at having already lost the things. He has proved that to him, Jesus is more precious than anything. Because notice that it's in the present tense now. He says, I count. Not I counted. I count. Everything is lost. I count them as rubbish. The only thing that's past tense here is I have suffered. And that's from a Greek form that implies a completed action, a done deal. I have lost with finality. But notice that Paul sees Jesus as supremely valuable as well. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Jesus my Lord. So yes, he's lost all things. Yes, it's been hard. But Paul endures. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of the value of gaining Christ. And in Christ, he has the righteousness that comes from God, not his own efforts. And so again, in gaining Christ, Paul realized that he gains true righteousness, right standing with God. His life experience and his expertise in the law only brought false righteousness. But in Jesus, he had true righteousness. And the goal of that is in verses 10 and 11, that I might know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, that I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. So let me break that down. He's saying, Jesus is so supremely valuable to me that everything I've lost, it's already gone, I've I've suffered the loss, but Jesus has been there. Jesus has been my companion in it, and I see Jesus as valuable and precious. And so that other stuff is, is like dung compared to Jesus. So I'm pressing on to know Jesus. I'm longing to know Jesus so deeply that he's, that he's even identifying where his present sufferings are like Jesus' sufferings. He longs to experience the full benefits of Jesus' resurrection power in his life. Now notice, Paul is not talking about persecution 
or martyrdom. Even though he was repeatedly persecuted, that's not what he's talking about here. He is talking about suffering the loss of everyday things. And yet he's saying that this is like sharing in Jesus' sufferings. Now, most of us would not consider sharing with Jesus in his sufferings, or if we do think about that, we automatically think of persecution and martyrdom. Because when we think of Jesus' sufferings, what we really think about is what we saw in the Passion of the Christ, Jesus being whipped, Jesus being beaten, Jesus being hung on the cross, nails driven through his hands, his feet, spear driven through his side where blood and water flow to the ground. We think of that as Jesus' sufferings. We think of Jesus' sufferings as him giving up his spirit on the cross and dying on our behalf. And we think about that as Jesus' sufferings. But like Paul, many of us share in Jesus' sufferings more than we realize, and it has nothing to do with the crucifixion. Jesus felt abandoned by God on the cross and by friends in time of need. Jesus felt the weight of anxiety as he was praying for, for Jerusalem in the garden, sweating blood while his friends fell asleep around him. Jesus felt the weight of grief as he lost a close friend. He became a man, a human, which means God came down. God experienced hunger, thirst, pain, ridicule, rejection. Hebrews 4 says he experienced every temptation that is known to man. Therefore, he is able to empathize with us in our weaknesses. Jesus put on flesh that, like ours, would be bruised, battered, torn, and pierced. Jesus felt pain, physical Relational, spiritual, emotional, mental pain. Because Jesus experienced life. And he experienced life as a human, as a person. And he experienced that life is broken and life is painful. And I think that's a reminder we need today, this morning here, Austin, Texas, 2022. Because in the midst of a still ongoing pandemic, still ongoing political unrest, still ongoing cultural shifts in our nation, inflation, people still getting sick, people still dying, people still struggling. I mean, we, we keep saying, oh, it's been a hard year for what, three years? Five? Maybe longer? Jesus shares in those sufferings with us. And we share in his. Probably much more than we realize. We are not alone in our suffering, in our trials, in our hard times. So this morning, where do you need to be reminded that Jesus is near to you in your suffering? What are those areas in your life where you feel just the weight of everything? And you need to be reminded that Jesus probably experienced something like this. Are you able to receive that Jesus has suffered very much like you have suffered or are suffering? Because he is your companion in that.
Going on to verse 12, Paul says this. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. In that, I see that right standing with the God of Scripture does not come from our own efforts. Paul, Paul, Paul begins this section by saying, not that I've already attained this. He's saying, I'm not there yet. Everything I've just said, I'm not there yet. I want my own resurrection experience with Jesus, but it hasn't happened yet. I'm not already perfected yet. I'm not there yet. I don't know Jesus well enough yet. Like, when's the last time you and I said that? But Paul's saying, I'm not there, so I press on. I keep going. I keep striving. I don't know Jesus well enough yet, so I keep going on. I don't give up. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And there it is. Paul, Paul could have said, I press on by studying the scripture more. I press on by serving at church more. I press on by, by my religious rituals. But Paul has already been there, done that. He knows that that's not the way. He knows that his right standing with the God of Scripture does not depend on his own efforts. It depends on the work and the person of Jesus Christ. The thread of hope throughout this passage is the completed work of Jesus. You see it in verse 9 where Paul says, I have righteousness that comes not from myself, but through God, but from God through Jesus. And remember, Paul's writing this in prison. He, he's not writing this from an ivory tower. He's in a difficult situation where he's writing this. And he's facing a trial that could end his life. And yet he says, I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. There's one other thing really difficult in this passage that I struggle with a lot. And it's verse 13. It says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Now, the last part of that sentence is a sports analogy. And I know that because I went to a youth camp where that was the theme, and they printed it on a T-shirt, and they talked about it for an entire week. It's a sports analogy. But the first part of that sentence catches my attention every time. And that's a part that I've struggled with. I've had to work through it a lot because, again, what I've heard is this taught in a way that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I've heard it said that because we're in Jesus, our life has been transformed, our life is in Jesus now, we are a new creation. All of that is true. But I've heard it said, therefore, forget what lies behind and press forward to what's ahead. And I'm sitting there saying, okay, how do you forget what's in the past? 
How, how do you forget what happened? If you've been mistreated or abused in the past, it's not like, it doesn't just happen that Christ restores us and makes us whole, so we just forget all of that stuff. And what about if we've made a mistake, a tragic mistake? Do we, do we just forget about that? I don't think that's what Paul is saying here, because even Paul didn't forget about the mistakes he made. He told people he was actively persecuting the church. And so I dug in and, and, and realized that what Paul's talking about here, in the immediate context, this sports analogy is not about the whole race of life. It's not about his entire life. It's about his Christian life, his walk with Christ. And it's in that walk with Christ that we are going to have some incredible things happen. We are going to have some difficult things happen. We are going to do some things really well, and we're going to do some things not very well. What Paul is saying is, I'm going to, I, I, I need to keep pressing forward. I don't need to be bogged down by what I did or didn't do well for Christ. The guy that I missed when I should have talked to him about Jesus, um, those things, I, need, I don't need to let them bog me down. I need to keep pressing ahead. And, and in the context of, of the passage, he's saying, I need to forget about the accomplishments. I need to forget about anything that would give me reason for confidence in the flesh. He's not forgetting that he persecuted the church. He's not forgetting that he lost those things. He's not bypassing his experience. He is simply saying, I need to press on and remember that those things do not give me confidence in my flesh. What he's doing is he's basically saying the way he's running the race, the manner in which he's running. If you know anything about running, which I don't, do I look like a runner? I'm, I'm not a runner, but I've heard this. I've heard that if you run, you run, you don't ever look back behind you. You don't look to the side to see who's running with you. You don't look back behind to see who you're, you're beating because you're probably going to end up tripping over something and falling on your face. I, I, I don't know that from running, but I know it from mountain biking, which might even be worse. Because I was going down a trail, I was in front, my friend was behind me, came to a fork in the road, I took the left, it dropped down into a long flat run, I was carrying a lot of speed, my friend was carrying a lot of speed, he hit the trail, went airborne, he made some sound, I don't know what it was, but it was enough to get me to turn around and see if he was okay, and then I went off the trail too. We were not okay same idea. Whatever happened back there, whatever stumble, whatever wrong turn, whatever you do, keep moving forward, straining forward, because how we run the race with Jesus matters. It sounds like human efforts, right? But I just said that a right standing with God doesn't come from our efforts. So why is Paul talking about this? Because he's not spending effort trying to accomplish righteousness. He's spending his effort trying to know more of Jesus. 
That's why he's saying, oh, that I might know him more. Oh, that I might press on more. Oh, that I might forget what I've done that hasn't been pleasing to Christ. Oh, that I might forget any reason for confidence in the flesh. I want to know Jesus. He's writing this from a prison cell. And in those moments, it's not his credentials, his experience, or his efforts that are bringing him peace. So I'm wondering, are there areas in life where you feel like giving up? In what ways do you need to go to Jesus for perseverance? Lastly, I'll close with this. I know this kind of seems heavy a little bit. Sermons that are on suffering are hardly ever fun. It just doesn't seem to go with the topic. But but I say there's a lot of hope here, and there is. Um, I think I've seen the hope of Jesus all throughout this. But I also want you to see in verse 15, Paul says this. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. In other words, think, if you're mature in Christ, this is the way you need to think about it. You need to think about it in terms of pressing on. You need to think about it in terms of knowing more of Jesus. Let us who are mature think this way. But notice that this is an encouragement. It's not a command. If it was a command, Paul would have used an imperative. He would have simply said, think this way as a command. Like, do this. But he didn't say, do this. He said, let us do it. It's a different, um, there's a different weight to it. It's not a command, it's an encouragement. I, I want us all to think like this. I want us all to pursue Jesus like this. Now, I get it. Like, it might be really hard for some of us to think this way. 2020 and tw- to 2022 hasn't been a very great decade, has it? Maybe we've all gone through something. Maybe we've lost someone. Maybe it's pandemic fatigue. Maybe it's our personal history of 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 whatever we've been through. Maybe it's PTSD, whether from military service or not. Maybe we've just suffered heavy losses and heavy disappointments. Maybe we're struggling with something like anxiety or depression, or maybe both. Maybe it's physical ailment, chronic illness. I I, I talk to a lot of people who just feel the weight of everything right now. And then we're showing up this morning, we're hearing this, like, think this way about Jesus. Some of us are just wondering, can I even press on? Like, Paul's talking about pressing on. Can I even do that? Or do I just feel so weighed down by everything going on around me? Does it all feel so heavy? Let me show you some of the hope, not just the hope that Paul has in Christ in this passage, but let me show you some of the hope from some other guys in Scripture. Moses, in Numbers 11.15, he says to God, 
just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery of leading your people, your grumbling Israelite nation. Kill me. And yet God didn't. God used Moses to continue to lead the nation of Israel, continued to do some pretty amazing things in Moses' life. Elijah, 1 Kings 19, Elijah, who's prophet to Israel, says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. His ancestors are already dead. He's saying, I'm no better than dead people. So go ahead and take my life. I'm so tired of being a prophet to your people. Just kill me. God didn't. God used Elijah, again, in some amazing ways. Job 3.11, if you know anything about the story of Job, you know that Job has lost a lot, pretty much like Paul. Job says, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Job is saying, I wish I'd never even been born. Jeremiah says pretty much the same thing. Cursed be the day that I was born. The day that my mother bore me, let it not even be blessed. He's saying, my life, I hate my life so much. Curse the day that I was born. And Jonah, if you know Jonah, Jonah says, it would be better for me to die than to live. These are just a few examples from the Old Testament. Every one of those guys got to the point where they felt they couldn't or shouldn't press on, but they did. They actually dialogued with God, and they said, kill me, and then they pressed on. And God redeemed their pain. He restored Job. He restored Job's life. He used the other guys in some amazing ways. God redeemed their pain. And then we have Paul in the New Testament saying, here, keep pressing on. So the testimony of the saints in the Bible is... A resounding, yes, keep pressing on. We have Jesus, the same Jesus who suffered so many of the things that we have suffered. When we are united with Jesus, we are united with a Savior who understands and intimately knows suffering. Press on to know him because you are not alone You have a faithful companion who understands. But it's not just the Bible guys either. I think if we look around in this room, I think there's probably a lot of us here today that have been there in the past where we've said, I I don't even know if I can keep pressing on. I don't. And we probably all testify that those of us who pressed into Jesus in those moments felt the abiding presence and the peace and comfort of Jesus, and they felt that they had more of Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about here where he says, I want to know more of Christ. Heavenly citizens are people of perseverance. Why? Not because of some miraculous inner fortitude that we have. It's not like we receive Jesus and all of a sudden are immune to life's pains. We don't have this inner fortitude. But because of Jesus, we have right standing with God. And when we are united with Jesus, 
we have our life anchored on the right standing with God, and we also have that companion in suffering. He knows what it's like in a deep and meaningful way. And so the work and the person of Jesus Christ is paramount in persevering and not quitting through life's most painful events. Jesus is the victorious and risen prophet, priest, and king. Jesus came to give us life and to give it abundantly. He says his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and in him we will find rest for our weary souls. Let's pray. God, I know that when we talk about suffering, it can seem so heavy. But God, I, I think it's just something that we need to hear. We need to be reminded of your goodness and your grace. We need to be reminded of the hope we have in Jesus. And so, Father, for the men and women who have heard this, no matter where they are today, whether they're here in the room, whether they're online, wherever they're at in their life, if, if, if things are going great, then, then bless them. If things are not going great, if, if they are in suffering, if they are in those moments where they say, I don't know that I can press on, God, show them the hope that they have in Jesus. Use this word, speak to us this morning, and help us to see your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.